Hey podcasters, I just wanted to take this opportunity. This is our promo before our main show. I just want to make sure that you are part of our amazing Facebook community. It is for active creative entrepreneurs and professional business owners from around the globe. It is not one of those spammy, it's all about me type of sales groups. This Facebook group, I actually created it to help build relationships, strong relationships and conversations. But more importantly, you can also plug into some of our special events and get invitations. But it's just a great, great tool. And everyone comes from a place of value, which I absolutely love and endorse. So listen, guys, if you're not already part of our Facebook community, make sure that you go to www.facebook.com. Okay, forward slash groups, forward slash become a game changer. All right, uh, I'll ask you for a few questions and make sure that you do that right now. Pause this audio, okay? Uh, go to the Facebook group and uh, introduce yourself and look forward to seeing you in there. Take care, bye. This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers Experience podcast with myself, Adam Strong. And today, we have a fun-packed show because we are actually going to be... Uh, today's episode is actually with probably one of the most... I would say is probably one of the most well-respected leaders, but is also a gentleman more than anything else. His name is Gary, and he is the chairman and CEO of the company called WD40. And we'll talk about what WD40 does and, and where they are and things like that. But they have a valuation or they have a valuation of, I believe you said it was $2.7 billion. They're on the NASDAQ. Uh, he, Gary is also um, an author as well. He's written a, an amazing book called Helping People When at Work, which was, I believe, published in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And I just want to give a big shout out before we get started, a big shout out to our good friends, Chester Elton and, and Adrian Gostick, because you know it, it's great having those great relationships. So Gary, just want to say welcome to the show. Hey, g'day, Adam. It's great to be with you today. You know, so <laughs> so as you can tell, guys, and I know that we have people from all over the world, especially from our Australian friends over there. You'll 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 know that Gary is Australian, um, but also he's based in San Diego, California, which is amazing. But Gary, listen, I, I know that you've got extensive re, uh, extensive experience in in running um, a Nasdaq and and, and, a, and a very fast growing company, and it's been around for quite a number of years. But where did it? Um, I suppose, how did it kind of start from you in terms of like your, I suppose, your journey into leadership and, and how did it kind of get to where you are, which is CEO of a big multi-billion pound company? Well, thanks. Yeah, Adam. It uh, started in 1987 in Australia, actually. At that time, I was working for the licensee of WD-40 in Australia. In fact, it was a company called Hawker Pacific, part of the then Hawker Siddeley Group. And the license was coming to an end and the company, WD-40, was starting to get really serious about thinking about how do we take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world. So I got a phone call one day. I'd, I'd 
got to know the folks at WD-40 as I traveled back and forth to the United States to attend meetings and such over a few years. And I got a call from uh, the vice president and, and he, and it kind of went like this, hey, Gary, um, we're thinking about opening a subsidiary in Australia. We really want to get serious about expanding globally. Um, you have been working in Australia and Asia and we'd wondered whether you'd like to join us. And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. My dad actually was an engineer. He worked for the same company for 50 years. And I remember saying to him, hey, dad, WD-40 has asked me to join them. And he said, you can't go wrong with that stuff, son. And he was right. <laughs> so on July 4th, 1987, with a fax machine under my bed in Sydney, I opened WD-40 Company Australia. Six months later, we actually opened our office and we went through the process of forming the company and doing all that stuff that you do. And we started on the journey and we developed, started to further develop the Australian market. And I spent a lot of time in Asia. I probably took the first can of WD-40 into China. And um, that was great. We're having a lot of fun, you know, building the brand. And in 1994, I, I, I then got a call from the same guy who was now my boss. And he, we're having a conversation. And I said, is there anything else you'd like me to do? And he said, well, funny, you should ask. Um, would you like to move to San Diego? And I said, to do what? He said, well, we really want to get serious about global expansion now. And we'd like you to come and help us uh, take, uh, take the can to the world through the learnings you've had. We'd opened a subsidiary in the UK and, um, and no one was really responsible for this strategic direction. So I said, sure. So packed up our toys, did uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, disrupt yourself, uh, move from uh, beautiful Sydney to beautiful San Diego. Wow. And then two years, three years later, he retired and um, I got to... I was given the privilege to lead this wonderful, wonderful company. And that's what I've been doing since 1997 is uh, building a wonderful, helping build a wonderful brand around the world mm. because of our people. I love it. Uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, because I know that we've got a lot of listeners from all over the world. What do WD-40 specialize in, in terms of their product range and, and, and that kind of stuff? Well, if you ask me what business we're in, we're in the memories business. Yeah. We exist to create positive, lasting memories by solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops around the world. And uh, our product range, the, the, the cornerstone, the lead brand is the blue and yellow can that everyone knows. It's a multi-purpose product that is a lubricant, a penetrant, a rust preventator, a, 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 a remover, uh, and a corrosion inhibitor. In fact, there are 2,000 uses for, for that product. And uh, on our website, there's a list of the 2,000 uses. And then apart from that, we have a range of products we call WD-40 Specialist, which are specialized maintenance products around um, that, that platform. We also own the 3-in-1 brand. Uh, people might remember 3-in-1 Oil. In the UK, we own GT85. And we also own a brand in the UK called 1001, which is a range of, of cleaning products. Uh, we own Solvol in Australia and Lava Soap here in the US. Um, so, uh, but the, the core of our business is around what we call the blue and yellow brand with a little red top. Hmm. It's interesting because when you talked about memories, and I know that we talked about this off air, you know, and, and I spoke about my grandfather or my granddad, and, uh, you know, he, he swears by it. You know, he, he, he used this small WD can, you know, it was, a, it was a small one. You know, it wasn't like the big one that you can get now. And it was literally you could, you know, 
essentially fix a rusty chain on your bike uh, to fix in the annoying squeaky door, right? And he's he's sweared by it, like literally sweared by it, Gary. Um, and he could fix anything. Um, and, and yeah, and, and some of the brands that you mentioned, I, I, I'm very familiar with them. So it, it, it's really, really interesting. They say so, there's only two things in the world you need, WD-40 and Gorilla Tape. If it's if it's stuck, use WD forty. If it's not, use Gorilla Tape. <laughs> Love it. It's fantastic. So okay, so okay, so you became CEO in ninety seven, right? And which is which was which is an amazing story in itself. What was the um, what was the very first thing that you did on your first day? Realized that I was consciously incompetent, <laughs> and that micromanagement wasn't scalable. And that if we were to do what we needed to do, we needed to build a, a tr- what we call a tribe of people. We had, a, we, had a, we had a dream. Imagine a place where you go to work every day. You make a contribution to something bigger than yourself. You learn something new. You're f- you feel safe, are protected, and set free by a compelling set of values, and you go home happy. That's the dream we had. Aristotle said in 384 BC, pleasure in the work puts perfection in the job. And what was obvious to me, not only through valid research, but observation is that leaders, so-called leaders, were not creating places where people actually wanted to go to work and have fun and create amazing outcomes. So my mission was to do that. I went back to school soon after I became CEO. I went to the University of San Diego. I got a master's degree in leadership. I studied under the great one-minute manager, Ken Blanchard. He is who I co-authored my book with. Uh, Later on, we we became and are still very, very good friends. I ended up being on his board of his company for 10 years. And that really taught me the power of servant leadership and we've been executing that in the company since. And uh, today we have employee engagement numbers that blow, blow people's brains out really. You know, the, the, the current employee engagement number is, a, is around 30%, which means about 30% of people who go to work every day are engaged. Our number is 93%. Wow. And we've been measuring that since 1999. The thing that I love is 98% of our people say they love to tell people they work at WD-40 company and 97% of our people say they respect their coach and their coach is their boss. We don't have managers or bosses. Everybody's a coach because our, our, as you know, our motto is we're not here to mark your paper. We're here to help you get an A. And the job of a leader of a coach is not to mark a paper and not to run on the field. It's to get on the sideline and get in the locker room, observe the play and help the player win. And that's what we do every day. And, um, and it's been our wonderful people, our wonderful culture, particularly in the times of COVID mm. that have really shone through. Mm. It's interesting because this is like music to my ears, Gary, right? You know, because I see so many CEOs, whether it be or business owners, whether they run a small company or they run a Fortune 500 company, right? And what do you think is, where do you think that CEOs get it wrong? You know, because you have gone on a massive journey over the last 40 odd years, you know, from opening a subsidiary in in Australia to becoming one of the most well-respected leaders of of all time. 
you know, where do you think some of the, com- when you have conversations with people on the golf course, for example, or when you sit in the round on a round, round table with other CEOs of big companies, where do you think, uh, where do you think a lot of these CEOs go wrong? I think there's three, three areas, Adam. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one is, and it's, it's probably not their fault, mm-hmm. but they play the finite game instead of the infinite game. In other words, the, the pressure to deliver short-term results overwhelms the need to build an enduring company over time. And particularly if you're a public company, uh, and particularly if you're a US public company, you know, it's, it's all about what did you do for me in the last 90 days? And that forces them to make infinite, finite decisions instead of infinite decisions. We're here to build an enduring company over time. So I think that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, which is their fault, is their ego eats their empathy instead of their empathy eating their ego. Mm. And they create what I call the soul-sucking CEO. And, um, <laughs> you know, I have him here. I think I showed him to you before. Yeah, you know. we did. What was this his is name Al. Al, Al, Al. Al, the soul-sucking CEO. <laughs> and, and Al has some really toxic behaviors. Number one is Al, Al really is corporate royalty. So he believes he's, he's fought his way to get there. He better have the best office in the building, a private parking spot. Those shall bow to, bow, bow to Al. Uh, Al never keeps his word. Um, and if something ever goes wrong, it's never Al's fault. It's always someone else's fault. Al never involves his people and he's always right. Um, he ha- always has the answers. Uh, he doesn't bring people in. Uh, Al hates feedback. Um, you know, he, he really doesn't need that. You know, he's, he's earned his spot here. And we know that, you know, it's the, it's the power of feedback and inclusion and, and all of that, that crisp and, and beautiful confrontation in a friendly way that you have. Al hates learning and he doesn't embrace what we call the learning moment. He leads by fear. Now, the learning moment to us is we, I have never made a mistake in my whole life, Adam. Can you believe that? No, definitely not. I could never believe that. (laughs) And you're right. But what I do, I don't call them mistakes. I call them learning moments. And I I have millions of learning moments. And the definition of a learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. Right. So at WD40, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments and we encourage them. And we, we praise and applaud people for positive ones and negative ones because we want them to feel safe in the circle of safety, sharing what's working and what's not working. And Al doesn't like that. It's, it's, it's fear-based. So Al has these, these awful um, attributes. And I wrote an article. It's actually on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to read it, it's called, it's about the soul sucking CEO um, <laughs> where I describe these behaviors. I wonder if you got any um, comments from those soul sucking CEOs on, on LinkedIn. And uh, did you have any comments off that? I got a lot of comments for people who work for him. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Yeah. I, I don't know how many emails or messages I've got from people who say, I work for that guy. <laughs> you know, the guy who's the master of control, the corporate royalty, yeah. you know, the one that always has the answers, the, the micromanager. He yeah. says micromanagement is absolutely essential. Yeah. I say micromanagement is not scalable. Al's probably hiding behind the shadows, isn't he? No, he's out there. <laughs> oh, he's out there? He's out. Yeah, that's him. Oh. Yeah. 
and you know he's there. Cool. And so that was um, that was two. Did you say there was a third one? Oh, um, and then not respecting the power of culture in an organization. Hmm. That's a big you know, one, I think. That's a big one. And I have a, a uh, an algorithm for culture that that I think you know people can use if if they think about it. And it's this: culture equals. And the equal sign means happens when, parentheses, values, plus behavior, close parentheses, times consistency. So the two things that you need to be very clear about to build a great culture is, do you have a set of values that set people free? And, you know, that's really important. We have a set of values. And are they hierarchical? Our number one value is we value doing the right thing. And then behavior is, do you love your people enough? And are you brave enough to not only applaud the behavior that supports the values of the company, but also do you love them enough to redirect behavior that's creating, if you will, cancer in the culture? Right. And if you don't do that consistently, you will, have, you will never be able to sustain a strong culture in the organization. And here's an example, you know, you might remember this, but I, I certainly do. When I was at school in Australia years ago and we go to the science lab, we get a little Petri dish, right, Adam? And you used to grow culture in it. And what did the science master tell me all the time? Make sure you observe the Petri dish every day. And if there's toxins and antibodies getting in there, make sure you take them out or treat them. Because if you don't, you'll end up with a sour culture. Right. It's no different in a business and as in a company. You have to have these values. You have to love your people enough and be brave enough to redirect and praise the behavior. And you have to do it every day, every day, every day, every day. I mean, you mentioned culture quite a lot, actually, in our conversation so far. And from your perspective, I mean, how important is it really? How important is it really to build, you know, I suppose the culture that you want or the CEO or the business owner or whoever it is, that is leading the ship, how important is it to create that thriving culture? And, you know, why, is, why don't I just do what Al does? Well, again, I, I think if you think about that, it, it's a multiplier effect. So let's talk about culture a little as being the backbone to employee engagement. A okay. strong culture gives you a strong employee engagement, okay? So – and let's 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 assume that culture is the will of the sorry, uh, employee engagement is the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So if you were to scale this, let's say that you had a will of the people or an employee engagement of ten, and you had a strategy of eighty out of a hundred. So ten out of a hundred for the culture for the so ten times eighty is eight hundred. There's your outcome. Right. If you you could if you had a a culture or a, a will of the people at 80 mm. and a strategy of 80, 80 times 80 is a lot more than 800. So, you know, I think you, uh, Drucker said culture eats strategy for breakfast. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that's true, not for me to disagree with um, the great Drucker. What I would say is culture and a strong tr strategy delivers a big breakfast. Right. Makes so you've got to have both. 
Yeah. You've got to have both. You can nice. have the best strategy in the world and a low culture. You can have high high culture and no strategy and you still, so it's, it's a multiplier. Mm. Now, I know that a lot of our listeners are um, entrepreneurial creatives, CEOs, but also, um, you know, decision makers of bigger businesses as well. Um, where should people start in terms of, okay, I want to make an improvement to my company culture or... I want to start from the very beginning. Where where would you where would you recommend? What would you advise? Okay, Adam, put up your hand like this. Say, I Adam Strong. I Adam Strong. From today on. From today on. Hereby. Hereby. Believe. Believe. It's all about the people. It's all about people. Okay, so that's where you start with a belief <laughs> and a commitment that it's all about the people. You see, when I talk to people about having a strong culture, I sometimes get this answer. Yeah, I'm really interested in having a strong culture. Well, interest doesn't get you there. What I want you to be is committed. I want you to be committed to having a strong culture. So number one, it's all about the people. Okay, number two is, do you have a compelling purpose in your organization. Think of our company, right, WD-40. It's pretty boring when you think about it. We sell oil in a can. But when you asked me what our purpose was, I said, we're in the memories business. So it's much more exciting when I talk to people and they say, what do you do? I said, I create positive, lasting memories, solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops around the world, or thinking about our just cause of an, as the organization. Our just cause is make life better at work and at home. Mm. That's our just cause. So you've got to have a strong purpose and a just cause. Then you have to have these compelling set of values that are the written reminders of the only acceptable behavior in the organization. They need to be hierarchical, so then there needs to be a strength. Our number one value at the company is we value doing the right thing, and that over that overlays everything, every other value. Our second value is we value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. Funnily enough, the sixth value we have actually references profitability, which says we value sustaining the WD-40 economy. Now, you would think as a public company, we should have profit as our number one value, and it's not. If we, if we work through all of our values, the, the deliverable profit is the applause of people doing great work. Right. If you take care of your people, your people will take care of your customers, and your customers will take care of your shareholders. So you've got to have this compelling set of values. Then you have your strategy and your tactics, and you have an organization that's committed to lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. You put that on four pillars, and the four pillars are you care about your people, which means it's about empathy, not ego. You're candid with your people. What does that mean? No lying, no faking, no hiding, transparency. I believe most people do not lie. I believe most people fake and hide because of the fear of Al. The next pillar is accountability. What does that mean? It means that you know what I expect from you and I know what you can expect from me and we are in agreement around that. And then finally, responsibility. Are we going to hold each other responsible? We have a, a, a thing in the company called the Maniac Pledge. And I'm going to pull it up here. I'm going to read it to you. This is our pledge of responsibility. Sure. 
I am responsible for taking action, asking questions, getting answers, and making decisions. I won't wait for someone to tell me. If I need to know, I am responsible for asking. I have no right to be offended that I didn't get this sooner. And if I'm doing something others should know about, I am responsible for telling them. That's our maniac pledge. That's our pledge of responsibility to each other. I love it. I I think it's fantastic. Uh, You know, I wish there was a lot more companies that would have that kind of, because it's, it's, it's an empowerment tool, isn't it, Gary? No, yeah, it's not rocket science. No. It's simple, not easy, and time is not your friend. And then fi- the final thing that you, they need to think about is belonging. Mm. You know, if you, you probably are aware of Maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization. The first two rungs in that journey are basically survival and security. Mm-hmm. Do I have what I need to survive and am I secure? And most organizations provide that. The next one is love or belonging. That's where we fall down because people do not create a, a culture where people actually feel like they belong. It's a shame that most people don't only know they're doing a good job because no one yelled at them today. Right. So what we did is we created a, a state of belonging. That's why we call ourselves a tribe, not a team because people belong. The number one attribute of a tribal leader is to be a learner and a teacher. I studied the attributes of the indigenous Australians and the Fijian Islanders, and I looked at what were the the, the attributes and behaviors that kept these people together in harsh times. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, let's think, let's pretend we're we're observing a a group of indigenous Australians uh, in a tribal meeting thousands of years ago. If we were kind of poking around and watching them, what would we see? We'd see the tribal leader actually teaching the young tribe members to throw a boomerang. Why? Because the boomerang was the tool of survival. And if you couldn't throw a boomerang, then you would not survive. So our number one responsibility as a tribal leader is to teach our people to throw the leadership boomerang. Because if they can't, they're not going to survive. And right. then other attributes were values, belonging. They've got to be future focused. We've got to recognize specialized skills. We want warriors and we want to celebrate. And those are the attributes of a tribe that keep people. Very cool. So I know that a very long time ago when you open subsidiaries, so you opened Australia and you went and did China and you went over to San Diego and you opened more markets and things like that. I guess opening a market, right? What would you say? I mean, you can't just turn up in China and, and, and start knocking on people's houses and, and factories and whatever it is. What was there a, a, what was the key, key thing for you? What was the, I mean, was there a, did you have a particular, I wouldn't say strategy, but I guess what was, what was the key to the success in opening up different markets? Well, from a market development point of view, we ask some simple questions and here they are. The first question we ask is, do you need me? Meaning the product. And there's either an answer, yes or no. China's a beautiful example of that. I, as I mentioned, I probably took the first can of WD-40 into China back in the 80s. And then when I asked the question, do you need me? The answer was no, because dirty diesel oil, a hammer and ignorance was solving the problem. (laughs) So there was no need for us. Now, fast forward to 14 years ago, 
when we ask that question, do you need me? The answer is yes, because dirty diesel oil ignorance in a hammer was not going to do the job of protecting expensive equipment at at Foxconn that's making Apple iPhones. You know, they needed a product like ours. So the answer is, do you need me? So yes, okay. Then the second thing is, how do you know me? How can I put a business plan together that will allow me to cost-effectively make you aware of my product? And then the third question is, if I can make you aware, can I make it easy for you to get me? How do I, is there a way of creating a distribution network right. that would, would, would make us easy to buy? Because mm-hmm. our motto is make the end user aware and make it easy to buy. Mental awareness and physical awareness are the two things. So that's how we look at it from a market standpoint. And we've, we've market mapped the world. We go in and we have an, a, a formula that we use to value a potential market that allows us to force rank where we'll go first, second, third, and fourth, because we only have time, talent, treasure, and technology, and none of them are abundant. So we have to make choices. We have to be focused. We can't go everywhere all at once. That's why we've had steady growth over many years, because we're you know, building markets one market at a time or many markets simultaneously. And then, of course, again, the culture is really important. So in a place like China, when we first went to China, I transferred the managing director of our Asia-Pacific region out of Sydney with his family and plopped him in China for four years because it was most important that as he built that organization, he built it from the foundation of our culture. Now, today, all of our people in China are local Chinese that guy is back in Australia with his family, had moved back after after four years. Interestingly enough, our country manager in China now was our first employee in China 14 years ago. <laughs> That's he crazy. joined the company as our administrative assistant. She had a passion to go into supply chain. We supported her educational journey. She went to the University of Shanghai. She did a a master's degree in supply chain management. So she's now working her way up through the organization. She managed our Asia supply chain. She moved into sales. She became our sales director. And then about two years ago, she was appointed country manager of China, one of our fastest growth opportunities. So do you think that our culture is not embedded? Of course it was because she's been and now she's hired along the way. So that's how we, and that's how we've done it everywhere. Amazing. You know, we, when we opened our office in Germany many years ago, we took our, who, the guy who's currently our president and COO based in, in San Diego. He's an Englishman, actually a Yorkshireman. And um, he, uh, he was a, then a, a, a country manager in, uh, in, in the UK. We took him, to Germany, and he opened our German office. He speaks German, French, Spanish, and Italian. Um, and then we just moved him around, opening all of these offices uh, in uh, in Europe. And now he's moved to San Diego with his family, and he's now our president, chief operating officer. Amazing, great story. I love it. Um, you know what's really interesting right now is. Um, you know, most of us are going through some quite interesting challenges right now, um, and especially in a lot of especially over the last sort of four to six months i've had multiple discussions with you know business owners entrepreneurs ceos alike a a lot of our listeners and i get this kind of feeling of 
there's this still big fear for change. I don't know if you got that as well, but um, have you ever kind of, do you have any, I suppose, tips and strategies about how you overcome fear for change? Because I think, you know, interesting, because I think there's one of our listeners probably listening right now. Uh, I'm not going to mention her, but she'll probably know who exactly who I'm talking about. But she was talking about um, the inability to be able to let go. She found it very difficult to let go because she was, wanted to control everything. But obviously, things are completely out of control. Do you have any tips for people that really fear for change? And, and, and how did you kind of overcome those uh, change things? Yeah, I, you know, I have a couple of things I'd love to share with you. The first thing is I love the statement that there is no comfort in the change zone and no change in the comfort zone. So change is not comfortable. Um, what I have learned in this COVID time is that in times of great and real need, we can pivot around fear. And it's the fear that really uh, is the paralyzer. You know, a, a great friend of mine, uh, uh, Tracy Fenton, has an organization called World Blue. And one of the questions she asks everybody is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Now, what are you afraid of? Now, what would you do? And thirdly, um, there's a thing called pilot-induced oscillation. And I learned this from Nicole Malakoski. Uh, she was, she's a retired um, uh, fighter pilot, uh, flew in the equivalent of the Blue Angels. And she has a great um, YouTube, uh, any, any of your body listening should look it up. It's called Fly Loose. And she says that when they're up there and they're flying these big fighter jets about, you know, 400 miles, 500 miles an hour, 30 feet apart, and they hit turbulence. They all talk about flying loose. So the natural thing to do is to take control of the, of the joystick and try and, and, and control the aircraft. And what you do is you end up making more and more uh, severe movements. So the planes are doing this. She said, what you need to do is fly loose. So you, you, you back off a little bit you know, your hands not gripped as much and you all fly through the turbulence together. And I think what happens in these times is people that they overdose in their micromanagement want. So they want to micro, you can't, you've got to fly loose because if you don't, you get leadership induced oscillation where you get all these jerky things going on. So, and I think it's important, you know, you've got to set boundaries. You've got to understand, you know, where the boundaries are but you can't micromanagement manage. Micromanagement is not scalable. This is a time when you want people free. You want them to be brave and courageous and creative. And, and, you know, and you have to be present, be mindful, be real, be there for the people. But you've got to let, they, they have to help you do it because you can't do it on your own. Yeah, because I, I, it's interesting. We're we're talking about fear, and I know that there's a lot of people resonating with a lot of our a lot of our listeners resonating with our conversation. Because I think that uh, when when you do go through those times of challenging times, and there have been many over the last sort of 40, 50 years, and and, and more. But I guess what I see is a lot of business owners and a lot of our listeners you know, they go back to safety, right? Going back to, oh, it's much quicker and easier. And if I lay this person off or, or whatever it might be, I just, I, I, I know that I'll be, if I'm working harder, then it's all going to be, it's all going to be okay. 
Well, you know, I, I know there's a lot of businesses going through horrible times right now. Right. But I think it's it's worth saying it's better for us all to suffer a little than a few to suffer a lot. Mm. So, you know, you've got to go back to your people. They'll help you solve the problem and, and you're going to need them again. I mean, and there's, there's some great opportunities to pivot now. Look at all the things where, as I get, in the times of great and real need, we pivot around fear. And, you know, we're learning new skills every day. Don't let them go. You know, I have a list here of of this is my my list of, of learnings during during COVID. Love and it. Right now, I don't know how many there are, but I'm capturing these because I don't want to lose this wonderful opportunity of learning. And we're taking a lot of this and putting it to work right now. You know, we had a four step uh, step process: stabilize, secure, reset, thrive. Yeah. So we had to stabilize the business, secure the business, reset. What are the beliefs we have today? because they're going to be the different to the beliefs we had prior to COVID. Now bring them in. Where do we have to pivot? What do we want to do more of? What do we want to do less of? Strategy is about what you don't want to do. And, and then how do we thrive in the current situation? Mm. And that's what we, we, we need to focus on. You know, what I love about you is your really, your, your positive outlook to life. You know, you are very humble you know, a, a very humble gentleman, and you really, you really kind of tried to take the most out of people, and I love that about you. I think that's fantastic. I really do. Um, interesting, interesting topic because I want to switch to something which is really interesting right now, which is all around, um, I suppose, hiring the right people. You know, and I mean, you've done this for God knows how many years, but you know, we've got young people which have. A you know a completely different mindset to people that are maybe your age, people that are my age, you know. So they have different. I suppose they're looking for different things in terms of I suppose attracting talent in your company. What is it that you do to attract top talent? Uh, and uh, have you got any tips for people that are struggling to hire the right people? Because what I see right now is I see that you know. I see a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to get this person in. I'm trying to get a salesperson in. I'm trying to get this person in. But they're missing this or they're missing that or whatever it might be. And, and I'm like, oh, goodness me. But I'd love to know what your, uh, what your tips and advice is on that. Well, number one is you must hire first for values. Yeah. I can teach most people to do anything, but you've got to um, hire for values. Now, here's the challenge. Do you have a clearly a clear set of defined values that you can you you can which allow you to align with? So my first question to anybody is: Have they do they have a clear set of values? The second thing that I think is really important is people want to work for organisations that have a purpose. Mm-hmm. So do you have a clear purpose? And again, you know, our purpose is to create positive, lasting memories, to make life better at work and at home. It's not to sell oil in a can. Anybody can sell oil in a can. Um, so that's, 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 those are the two things. And thirdly, young folks today and all of us are just insatiable learners. So are you, uh, do you have an organization that's going to offer them the opportunity to learn? And are you rewarding them for learning? We've got to continue to learn every day. Um, and those, so it's values, purpose, just cause, and learning. Wow. 
Fantastic. I, I think that's, that's some great tips guys. And I really hope that you are kind of taking some of the, some of the advice that Gary's kind of teaching you. Cause I think that it's just world-class top coaching and consulting more than anything else. You know, if it's good enough for Gary, who is the CEO and chairman of, of, of a, of a big NASDAQ billion pound company, it's got to be good enough for anybody else. Um, what I was going to say, there was something else that I, I had off the tip of my tongue that I really wanted to ask you, by the way. Oh, I know what's going to ask you. If you was to be able to look back at your accomplishments right now, is there something that you would have done differently? And if so, what, what was it? Um, I would have learned the power of these three words a lot sooner. I don't know. And you heard me say earlier that, you know, I don't know if I've said it, but in most situations, I'm probably wrong and roughly right. And getting comfort with that is so empowering. And getting comfort with those three words, I don't know, is very empowering. Because when you don't know, you're open to learning. The other thing is that's become real to me is also the comfort, getting comfort around the word uncertainty. And when I realized that uncertainty meant this, a series of future events that may or may not happen, may or may not happen. Right. And getting comfort around that. So, but certainly um, way back, I, those three words and, and then really treasuring the power of people. Awesome. Uh, what is it that you're, um, I, I guess, you know, you, you've been in, in your position for, you know, 23 years, you know, uh, and you're in, you, you're loving what you do. Uh, I, have, I, I get that's, that's the impression I get, but what is the future of WD 40 and what's the future of Gary Ridge? Well, I don't have a job. I have a purpose. Yep. Um, and my purpose is to continue to share our learning moments, uh, show my scar tissue as much as I can so that I can help um, encourage leaders to take on some of the things we've learned. Because I think as, as leaders of businesses, we have the biggest opportunity to influence people's lives than anybody else. And we need to do that. We need to create happy people because happy people create a happy communities and happy communities create happy worlds and we need that. As far as WD-40 is concerned, there's lots of squeaks in China and lots of rust in Russia and we're just the boys and girls to take care of that. I love it. Listen, Gary, I, I just want to say I feel so appreciated and privileged to to have you on the show today. So I just want to say thank you so much. And by the way, is there anything that we can do for you? Because I know that we have a lot of listeners from all, all over the world. Is there anything that we can do to help with you with your cause in 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 educating and and and, and I suppose fulfilling your potential? Well, one thing I'd ask someone to do is when this when they finish listening to this call. Think about someone that's positively influenced them in their life. Pick up the phone or pick up the pen, give them a call or write them a note and say, I was just thinking about you and I want to thank you and I'm grateful that you came into my life because you've helped me be a better person. How would you feel if you got that note, and, and, and Adam? I mean, I... I was kind of, <laughs> I'd feel quite tearful. I mean, I was kind of like emotionally, literally set. I was like, gulp type of thing. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, that's how I'd feel. So that's what we can all do. I mean, let's spread a little gratitude. You know, mm. my, my dear mate, Chester Elton, right? 
Right. Leading with gratitude. Let's Absolutely. spread a little gratitude. Absolutely. So um, listen, guys, hope that you've enjoyed our show with myself and Gary Ridge. Um, feel free to connect with Gary on some of the links below. I know that Gary's very active on LinkedIn. If you have any questions, I'm sure that he would be more than happy to answer them, provided that he has a little bit of time. Just make sure that you refer to the Game Changers Experience podcast so he, he knows that you've come from, from, from uh, listening to our show. If you have any questions, again, feel free to drop us an email and the team will get back to me. So listen, hope that you've enjoyed today's show and from myself and Gary, have a fantastic day, week, month, whenever you listen to this. So see you soon and good day. Take care. Good day. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers Experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.